We've read what the psalmist has to say about God's law, and we've sung about God's law. Now we're going to talk about God's law. We're going to read it in the form of the Ten Commandments, and we're going to talk about the first four commandments. This is a passage in the Bible that you come to when you're preaching and you feel, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but a little extra weight when you approach it. All of the Scripture is inspired. It's all true. It's all inerrant. It's all enduring. It's all worthy of of our submission and worthy to have authority over our lives. But then you come to one of these passages, a passage that any Bible scholar would recognize as central to the Scriptures. Even secular scholars would look at the Ten Commandments and say this is one of the most important pieces of literature ever written in all of human history. You feel a little bit more weight when you approach that passage. As I studied this week, I thought, man, it's, not, it's just not justice to take two Sundays to talk about the Ten Commandments. And so I just want to give you a heads up. For those of you who may share in my frustration that we're only going to talk about Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments over two Sundays, that's moving way too fast. In the fall, on Wednesday nights, we're going to have a series on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to go way slower. We're going to take them one at a time, and we're going to talk about them and think about them. And there's so many amazing things to study when you think about the Ten Commandments. I've already bought a, a shelf of books in my office, and I've started reading for Wednesday nights in the fall, thinking about what all we might discuss in that series. For Sunday mornings, we're going to cover the Ten Commandments in two Sundays. And I want you to understand that the Ten Commandments are divided into what some Bible scholars call the two tables. And there's a little bit of disagreement about where you divide the commandments. Some say you divide them five and five. I think it's a little bit better to divide them four and six. And so this is on your notes. The first four commandments focus on our obligation toward God. And the last six commandments focus on our relationship toward neighbor. Some Bible scholars don't like that we take commandment five and say that's how you deal with your neighbor. They say your parents aren't really your neighbor. Your parents are really an authority in your life akin to God and they belong in the first table. But I think the majority of scholars separate them, the first four and the last six. And this division, however you put commandment five in the, in the breakup there, this division is reflected really by Jesus. We'll come back to this later, but it's reflected by Jesus when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he summarizes the commandments by saying, love God and love your neighbor. That division is reflected in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus doesn't quote the Ten Commandments when he gives those those uh, that explanation of loving God first and loving neighbor second, but it certainly fits with what you see in the Ten Commandments. I want you to understand that these are God's words. That may sound really obvious, but it's really important. These words are God's words, and they were spoken to Israel after they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. This is really, really critical. These are not Ten Commands that God gave to Israel saying, if you do these ten things then you and me can be together. These are ten things, ten commands, ten rules, ten words that God gave to Israel after he went to Egypt and redeemed them. After he rescued them by the power of his hand and made them his own people. We talked about this last week at the end of 19. He's already said to them, you belong to me. And he's going to say it again in chapter 20 before we get to the commandments. These are words that God gave to the people that he saved to be his own. They're not commandments that he gave to the Hebrews saying, 
if you can do a good enough job, then I'll love you. What the biblical pattern is, is God loved these people when they were unworthy and unlovable. He made them his own, and then he said to them, this is how I want you to live. Sometimes you may hear people say, well, you know, the Old Testament is just a whole bunch of rules, and the New Testament's all about grace and forgiveness for how you break those rules. And if you hear somebody say that, you should just look them dead in the eyeballs and say, I'm not sure you've read the Old Testament or the New Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, you read page after page after page of God's grace to undeserving people. We've seen it every step of the way with God dealing with the Hebrews and making them his own. God's grace has been poured out on these people over and over and over and over again, despite who they are. And, just spoiler alert, if you get to the New Testament, Jesus talks about all the commands. All of them. He goes back to all of them. And he doesn't say, oh, now let's just forget about that Old Testament stuff. In fact, he ups the ante, which is something that we'll talk about this fall. I want you to understand the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Just as the flow of the story goes, you realize that everyone who Moses spoke to when he brings these commandments down, all the adults die. None of them make it into the promised land. They're all going to be cursed to die out in the wilderness. And it's their children who are raised up by the Lord and brought in under the leadership of Joshua to take possession of the land. And before Moses turns them loose to go and before Moses knows he's about to die, he gives one last speech and he goes over the Ten Commandments in addition to other issues. The big idea is really simple. You can probably fill it in without my help. God calls his people to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. All their heart, all their soul, all their might. That comes from Deuteronomy. Moses called the the next generation to do exactly that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And that's a great summary of the first four commands that we're going to look at this morning. So what we're going to do this morning and in a couple of weeks when we finish this passage, is we're going to read all of the Ten Commandments. We're not just going to read the first four. We're going to start in Exodus 21 and go all the way to 21 so that we get the context of the story. So you follow along as I read the Word of God. Scripture says this in Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me And keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Father, we approach your word with thanksgiving, with praise. Father, hopefully we approach humbly, Submitting our lives to the authority of your word, and we pray that your word would convict us, that your word would encourage us. Father, that we would know how to deal with these commands and these laws. We would know how to think through them, how to apply them to our lives. And Father, that even as we look at these famous Ten Commandments that so many of us know, that we would see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Put a picture on the screen of a man named Lynn Westmoreland. Lynn Westmoreland is a retired United States congressman from Georgia. He served in a couple of different districts throughout his career. And not too many years ago, he co-sponsored a piece of legislation that would have mandated the public display of the Ten Commandments in the United States Congress and in the United States Senate. And because he put his name on that legislation, he got a fair bit of attention and media coverage, and one of the media outlets that contacted him for comment or for interview is a show called The Daily Show, and this is when Jon Stewart was still host of The Daily Show. Some of you have never seen The Daily Show. Some of you know Jon Stewart, and you know what the show's about. Let's just say it this way. If you're a conservative and you get invited on The Daily Show, it's only because they want to laugh at you or embarrass you or put you in a corner and make you look stupid, and I don't know if Lynn Westmoreland knew that or not. But he accepted the invitation to go on The Daily Show, and he's having this discussion with Jon Stewart. And Stewart talks off, you know, tell us who you are and the the small talk kind of stuff. And he says, tell us about this legislation that you want to pass. And he talks about it, and he says, where do you want them displayed, and why do you want the the Ten Commandments displayed? And they have a a little conversation. And then I'm just going to read you direct quotes from the interview. Stephen Colbert says... What are the Ten Commandments? Lynn Westmoreland says, What are all of them? Stephen Colbert says, Yes. Lynn Westmoreland says, You want me to name them all? Stephen Colbert says, Yes, please. Now, this is a direct quote. Lynn Westmoreland says, Hmm... Don't murder, don't lie, 
Don't steal. Hmm. I can't name them all. Stephen Colbert makes some faces that made his audience laugh. And then he ended the interview. Apparently, this interview was done on a Saturday or a Sunday, depending on how you view this issue. He ended the interview saying this, Thank you, Congressman, for breaking the Sabbath to be on my show. And you watch it, and I'll be honest with you, it's almost painful to watch. Here's a man who at the highest level of government in our nation wants the Ten Commandments to be displayed publicly, wants it to be mandated by law, and he's asked a simple question. Can you name those Ten Commandments? And he gets three out of ten. Three out of ten. In 2016, Lynn Westmoreland had the highest score for all conservatives being conservative in the United States Congress. He only scored a 30 on Stephen Colbert's Ten Commandment quiz. I wonder how you would do. Maybe you don't want to think about that. If we hadn't just read them, we hadn't just thought about them, you hadn't just looked at them on the page, and I just asked you, write them down. I wonder how many you would have been able to come up with. My guess is most of us wouldn't have done that much better than Lynn Westmoreland. I think it's fascinating that Lynn Westmoreland, of the three out of ten that he's able to name, doesn't get any of the first four. They all come from the back six. I think that would be very common among adults in the United States of America. We all know don't murders in there somewhere, and you're probably not supposed to lie, and you probably shouldn't take anything that doesn't belong to you. Outside of that, he really struggles to come up with what the Ten Commandments are. I want you to see this morning the first four commands, the four that Lynn Westmoreland completely skipped, the four that most Americans never really give much thought to, we're not going to say everything that could be said about those four commands, but we do want to think about what they mean and what they require of us. And so we'll start with this. The Ten Commandments begin with a reminder of who God is and how he saved his people. They begin with this reminder. You see it in verse 1 and verse 2. Before you get to any commands, anything that the people are to do, God just wants them to remember. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Slavery. Until you know God is the Redeemer, you're not ready to meet Him as the lawgiver. Until you know God is the God who saves His people, you're not ready to really understand the commandments. Now, look, you can come just to God as lawgiver, just as this judge, jury, and executioner, and you can listen to the commands and you can understand them and you can know that you're guilty. But you can't truly understand why God has given us these commands unless you know him as the God who sovereignly and graciously acts to save his people. And so God begins before he does anything else. He's done this several times leading up to Exodus 20, and then he just stops one more time and he says, this is what you need to know first before we get to any of the commands. I am the Lord your God. I am your God. That means you are my people. We have a relationship. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you, I rescued you, I redeemed you, I purchased you. You belong to me. And only when you understand that dynamic are you ready to listen to God as he gives us these 
commandments. And so let's just think through the first four. Understanding the first four commandments will go quickly, more quickly than we could certainly go. The first commandment specified who Israel should worship. Who Israel should worship. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally what the Hebrew says is you will have no other gods in front of my face. And the same Hebrew phrase is used elsewhere to describe a man who is married and his wife is still alive and he goes and he takes another wife, a second wife. The same idea. God is saying you and I are married and it's an exclusive relationship. It's not an open relationship. You and me and that's it. And you're not going to bring any other gods, little g gods, false gods, pretend gods into this relationship and set them before my face as if we're all going to be in this relationship together. No other deities, not money, not your job, not your children, not your reputation, not your career, not your country. This is an exclusive relationship. You will have no other gods before me. Listen, if you get this commandment right, all the rest of them take care of themselves. If you get it wrong, everything goes haywire. A.W. Pink, I've shared many quotes from A.W. Pink with you, and this is a good one. If this first commandment received the respect it demands, obedience to the other nine would follow as a matter of course. When you know who you are and you know who God is and you've got that improper relationship in your mind and your heart and your soul with everything that you are, the rest of these fall into place. But when this goes haywire, it all goes haywire. Which means, as we move through the other nine commandments, if you say, ooh, that one stings a little bit, it means the first one also stings. And you're church-going folk in the Bible Belt, so you'd like to... Raise your hand and say, okay, commandment one, we're good. We worship the Lord only. We don't worship any other gods. But if you're off track in any of the other nine, you've got to go back to the first one and say, what went wrong here? No other gods before me. Commandment two specifies how Israel should worship. How Israel sh should worship. And there's something interesting when you look at commandment two, three, four, and five. Right here in the middle. They all have commentary. They all have explanation. The first commandment doesn't have it. And then you get to commandment six about murder and adultery. And then it kind of goes away. But right here, two, three, four, and five, they all have explanation. And I think it's fascinating. Two, three, four, and five are the four commands that Israel was most prone to not take seriously. And I think if you think about it, they're the four commands that we're most prone to not take Seriously, Look, I don't have to browbeat you about murdering. Most of you would feel like, that's a big deal. I shouldn't do it. But when you look at these other four, two, three, four, and five, it's almost as if God knew we would be inclined to say, well, murder's a big one. Two, three, four, and five. Eh. 
you shouldn't do them, but if you do, it's not that big of a deal. So he gives this commentary in here, and sometimes the commentary is encouragement, sometimes the commentary is warning, sometimes it's explanation about why this is important or why it matters to the Lord, but it begins here with the second commandment that specifies how Israel was to worship. And the specific issue is, you're not going to use any images of me. You're not going to make a statue of me. You're not going to make a picture of me. You're not going to represent me in any way, shape, or form. And the logic behind it ought to be pretty obvious. There's nothing that you or I can make that can capture all that God is. Nothing. The Hebrews are going to try in just a few chapters they're going to try with a golden calf. And they're going to think calves. Calves are, are strong and they're full of life and they're powerful. And God's going to say, that doesn't represent all that I am. It's an idol. And he tells Moses to grind it up and to put it into their drink so that they can drink it. No representations of God are to be used in our worship of God. And really, if you get underneath it, what God is saying to the people is this. Your thoughts about me don't need to be defined by idols, statues, pictures. Your thoughts about me need to be defined and shaped by what I tell you about me. My self-revelation has to shape who you think I am and what you think I'm like. Here's a quote from another A.W., not Pink, but Tozer, and he puts it this way. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I've shared that with you before. When you think about God, whatever pops into your mind is the most important thing about you. It's getting at commandment two and commandment one, and it's saying, are your thoughts about God shaped by something other than his own self-revelation, who he says he is and what he says he's like? Commandment three. It specifies how Israel should use God's name. God's name. The specific name mentioned in this command is Yahweh. You notice in verse 7, it's LORD in all caps. L-O-R-D, all caps. That's the English translator's way of telling you this is God's name, Yahweh. The Jews, I think, made the mistake of looking at this command. It's in Exodus 20, verse 7, and saying... Well, if we're not supposed to say Yahweh in vain, we won't say it at all. They just cut it out of the vocabulary. In theory, the only person in Israel that would ever utter the name, the Lord or Yahweh, was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement when he gives the blessing or the benediction over the people. And the rest of the year, they just didn't even say the name. They invented other words to take the place of the name so they wouldn't use the name in vain. And I think it's a little short-sighted because God's name isn't just the four Hebrew consonants that spell out Yahweh. God's name is his character. It's his reputation. You can call him God or the Lord or Yahweh or in, new, in uh, the New Covenant we might say Jesus or Christ or the Lord. It really doesn't matter the, the noun that you plug in there. When you talk about God, it had not better be in vain. When you use God's name, there's only two occasions that that ought to come out of your mouth. One is in worship, or one is in trying to speak the truth about God to encourage other people about who he is. Outside of that, his name should not be on your tongue. So, examples of where we fall short 
in this way. When we use God's name as an expletive or a curse. When we use God's name to express surprise or frustration. I'll be honest with you, I hear that all the time from church-going people. Oh, Lord. You just broke the commandment. You just uttered God's name, and it wasn't with a heart of worship, and it wasn't to bring Him honor or glory. You just broke it. When we commercialize God's name for profit, when we teach or say things about God that are not true, about who he is and how he's revealed himself, you're taking his name in vain. Let's get real personal. When you come to church and you sing, but your mind is somewhere completely else, God's name is on your lips but not on your heart. When you pray and you just go through the motions and you say the canned prayer, you know how easy it is for pastors to say canned prayers For you to say canned prayers, just to roll through it without any thought, without any reverence, without any worship. Look at the warning in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We look at it and we say, well, it's not like you killed anybody. So God gives us a little reminder. He doesn't attach that to the command about murder, but he attaches it here and he says he will not hold you guiltless when you break this command. It will not just get swept under the rug of mercy. It will not just be forgotten. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment specifies when Israel was to worship. Specifically, that was one day out of seven set aside for worship. In Exodus, it goes back to the creation and it says, look, in Six days the Lord created, and then he rested, and he made that seventh day holy. What's interesting is that in the book of Deuteronomy, the commandment is more or less changed. The command is the same. Do your work in six days, worship on the seventh, but the reasoning is completely different. Creation isn't mentioned. The exodus is mentioned. For the Lord redeemed you, and he brought you out to be his people. And the twin ideas when you marry these two passages is that we're to work six days, we're to have a day of rest, and on that day of rest we're to remember God made us and God saved us. He's our creator and he's the one who redeems us. There's a million things we could talk about on this commandment. We're going to talk about many of them this fall. Let me just share with you an interesting quote I found. This may be a little surprising. It's from Bill Gates. And this is what he says. In terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Now, I put it on the screen, and I read it out loud, and you see it in church, and you think, Oh, Bill, you shouldn't say that, Bill. So irreverent. I don't think it's far from the way most of us think about worship on the Lord's Day even those of us who show up three out of four Sundays. Look, I've got a friend in town. He's a pastor at a different church. His name is Phil Skelton. He's not born here. He's born, what they say, across the pond. So he speaks a different kind of English, right? We get together every now and then and we eat. And, you know, if you guys talk about people at church, it's called gossip. But when pastors talk about people at church, it's called ministry. So... <laughs> We get together for ministry, 
And Phil talks about his people, and I talk about how great you guys are and how much I love you. And every now and then, Phil will say something. I, I kind of picked up on it. He'll say, you know, that guy's a real wackadoodle. A wackadoodle. I say, what in the world is a wackadoodle? He says, you guys don't use the term wackadoodle? I say, no, we don't use that. He says, well, that, he, this guy's a real wackadoodle. Now, look. I got this tendency when I read this on the screen to say, what a wackadoodle this guy is. What a nut. Can you believe this guy? Hey, that's crazy. I just don't think it's that far from the way most of us think about church. Look, the reality is there's not a whole lot going on on Sunday mornings. I know you could stay home and sleep, and that's something that's going on, and you're here instead of that, and kudos to you for getting up this morning. But I think there's an awful lot of people in the Bible Belt who think of church as, well, I'll do it as long as I don't have something else going on. I'll give God one out of seven as long as there's not something, dare we say, more important, more urgent, more pressing. Well, it's just, it's just this time. It's just this day. And I'm not just saying that you walking in the door and we check you off on the attendance rolls means you have faithfully and dutifully kept the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Because you can put an appearance in here and do nothing within a million miles of keeping the Lord's Day. I just don't think most of us are that far from what Bill Gates has the honesty to admit. I got better stuff to do. And some of us are just here because we don't have anything else better to do. Well, what else am I going to do on a Sunday morning? Well, I'll show up as long as this isn't going on or I don't have to be there or here. We can talk about work and policemen and people who have to work on Sundays. We'll talk about all that stuff in the fall. Right now I'm just talking about the heart of the command. Is it in your heart to think about this command and to say, God, who made me and saved me, is asking for one day out of seven where I stop and I slow down and I rest and I worship and I acknowledge him as the creator and I acknowledge him as the redeemer. So those are the first four. Let's think about application. How do we apply these four commands? First idea is this. God's people should fear God. I just think we need to start there. That's where the passage ends up in Exodus 20. When you know who God is and you hear him speaking and he gives you his word, it ought to cause you to tremble. And that's exactly what happened to the people. Look, there's an interesting back and forth in the book of Exodus where Moses kind of keeps coming back up and down the mountain. And sometimes it gets a little confusing when you're reading through the text, I'll be honest with you, to, to realize who's talking and who's talking to who and what's going on. But there's kind of this back and forth. This is the one place in the whole event, in the months that they spent camped around Sinai, this is the one time God spoke to the people, not through Moses, he just spoke to them. He boomed from the mountain and he gave these ten words. And did you notice what the people said after he was done? They come running up to Moses and they say, we want you to talk to us, not God. How strange. In an age when so many people openly wish and long for the possibility that God would just open up the heavens and speak to them. 
Like, this isn't enough. I just want you to say something to me where I can hear it. Well, it happened right here. And after it happened, the people went to Moses and said, if that happens again, we're going to die. Knock it off. You talk to us for God. We can't stand it anymore. And I know there's the part in the passage, if you look in the text, Exodus 20, where Moses says to the people, verse 20, do not fear. So you say, well, this fear stuff. Moses says, do not fear. But what does he say in the rest of it? God has come to test you. Why has he come to test you? So that the fear of him may be before you. Why does he want the fear of God to be before these people? It's so that they may not sin. The book of Proverbs picks up on this and says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom in life apart from fearing God. Jesus himself picks up on this and he says to his disciples, Don't don't be afraid of man. Don't fear man. You should fear God, the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul and hell. You should fear him. All of those passages, fear means fear. God's people should fear God. Secondly, you can't love others rightly without first loving God supremely. You're not ready to listen to the back half of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, until you understand what it means to love God. It's exactly why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't say, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor and don't forget to love God. But he got the order right. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and might. The second, second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to get the order right. Thirdly, like the psalmist, we ought to love God's law. We ought to love God's law. Look at Psalm 119.97. I'll put it up on the screen. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. If you can't say that and mean it, the problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with your heart. In your prayer and my prayer, when we find ourselves not loving God's law, has got to be, God, you have got to change my heart. You have got to help me think differently about your law. I hear your law, and all I can think is how you're imposing rules on me, and you're restricting my freedom, and you're taking all my fun away, and you're making life miserable. And God, I need you to change my heart so that when I hear your law, immediately I feel love for your law. Fourth. The law is powerless to save. Powerless to save. Galatians 3. We'll read verse 10 up on the screen. Paul says this, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed is the person who doesn't do all things written in the law and do it. Listen, when we read these commands, they're important. They should shape your life. They should be formative for who you are as a person and what you look like as a follower of Jesus Christ. But God did not give us these commands, the first four included, so that we could earn our way with God, so that we could earn some kind of relationship with God. In fact, if anything is true, when you and I read these first four commandments and we really understand what they require of us, we have to step back and say, you know, I've done a lousy job. 
of keeping the first four. I mean, we're, all, we're not even halfway through the commandments, and I hope that you're looking at them thinking, I haven't done them. Even if I did them perfectly from this point forward, which we all know is impossible, what about all the times I've blown them in the past? We don't come to the Ten Commandments saying, God, look how good we can be. We come to the Ten Commandments honestly and we say, we're terrible. We failed. We add our voices to the voice of the great hymn writer Augustus Toplady who wrote a hymn in the 1700s called Rock of Ages and he said this, Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Our hope is not that we can keep commandment one, two, three, and four well enough, good enough, faithfully enough, so that God looks down on us and says, well, you know, I'm going to grade on a curve. Lynn Westmoreland got a 30 on that quiz. We're going to curve that down. You, you know, you, I'm going to curve you up. You did your best. That's not our hope. Our hope is to come and say, God, I've blown it. I made a mess of these first four commands. There's nothing that my hands can do to provide atonement for me falling short of your law. What I need is your grace. What I need is your mercy. That leads us to the last idea, which is this. Our hope is built on the new covenant, the new covenant. It's mentioned in Ezekiel 36. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, but there's a beautiful picture of it. In Ezekiel 36, look what the prophet says. This is God speaking to his people through Ezekiel. The Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. How did they profane it? Well, they put other gods before the Lord. They worshipped idols. They did not keep the Lord's name used with respect and reverence, but they used it in vain. And number four, they did not keep the Sabbath. They broke all the first four. So they profaned his name. Among all the nations, God says through the prophet, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. It goes on and it says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That's a promise of grace. That's God saying to his people, look, I've given you the law and you've profaned my name. You've made a complete mess of it. You've broken the first four over and over and over again. As a nation and as individuals, you've really fouled it up. So here's what we're going to do. Here comes the surprise. Because when you hear the first part, you think, oh, he's mad. He's really, really mad. He says, I'm going to clean you. And I'm going to fix what you messed up. And even though your heart is as hard as a rock, and it's dead inside your chest, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to fill you with my spirit so that you have a new spirit. 
And I'm going to move you. I'm going to do a work of grace in your life in such a way that you actually are then able and willing and delighting to keep my law and to keep my statutes and to keep my commandments. There's a man who lived a lot of years ago. You've probably heard of him. His name was Augustine, or sometimes we call him Augustine. He's from North Africa. He's recognized as one of the, the most brilliant men who have ever lived, one of the great church fathers. Augustine looked at the Ten Commandments and he just felt despair because he knew his own heart and he knew his inability to keep God's law. But he looked to Christ and he looked to the gospel and he saw hope. And he saw this promise of Ezekiel 36 that God would do in us and for us what we were not able to do for ourselves. And when he put both sides of that equation together, this is how he prayed. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. You're the lawgiver. You command what you will. But he knew his heart and he knew his inability and he knew that he would fall short. So he says, Lord, if you're going to command what you will, I also need you to grant what you command. I need you to do something in my heart that changes the way I think about your law. I have fallen so far short and I can never earn my way with you. I need you to be gracious to me. I need a mediator. It's exactly what the people needed, and they knew it. They heard this voice booming to them from Sinai, and they run to Moses, and they say, we cannot bear to stand before the Lord. You be the one to speak to us. But what they needed was not Moses. They needed Jesus. They needed the one who kept the law of God perfectly, who delighted at every moment and every step and every second in keeping the law of God. And who at the end of his life died as a sinless substitutionary sacrifice for people like you and me who have failed to keep his law. And the just judgment and wrath of God that we deserve as lawbreakers rained down on Jesus on the cross. And when we come to him saying, Lord, grant what, command what you will and grant what you command. When we pray that sort of prayer, this exchange takes place. When your faith is in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is counted as yours as if you perfectly obeyed the law of God. And your sin and all of its horror and ugliness is counted as paid for at the cross. Our hope is not in commandments. Can we display them enough? Can we memorize them enough? Can we keep them enough? Our hope is in Jesus, who did know them, and who did keep them, and who died for people like you and me who haven't. I want you to bow, and we're going to pray together. Father, we come to your law, and we're humbled. Father, we are reminded of how short we have fallen of your glory. Father, we're reminded of the greatness of your grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Father, we admit when we think about these first four commands that we are sinners. We are rebels. We're transgressors. Our ways and our lives and our mouths and our hearts are marked by iniquity. Father, in the labors of our hands can never atone for our sin. And so our hope is in you, the God who saves his people, the God who speaks to his people. The God who sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us. 
Father, I pray for folks in this room, one, that they would see their sin for what it is, and two, that they would see Jesus as the Savior, as the mediator that they need. Father, your spirit can bring that change about in our hearts, and that's what we ask for this morning, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up, and we're going to sing one last song, and as we sing, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond publicly give you the opportunity to come. If you'd like to pray with me or Hunter or Chris down at the front, we'd be, be honored to pray with you this morning. If you don't have a public decision, we can